agreed to work together in the global political agreement as a compromise. But we also said this would not be the, the permanent agreement of running the country. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe sounds like an emboldened man these days. Three years ago, he won fewer votes than his rival in the first round of a presidential election. In the second round, he orchestrated a crackdown brutal enough for his opponent, Morgan Changarai, to withdraw from the race. Although widely criticized, the second round, the round vote went ahead. Mr. Mugabe hung on to power and formed a coalition government with the opposition. That was supposed to be the beginning of the end for his now 31-year reign. Instead, President Mugabe marginalized the opposition, he reconsolidated his power, and he's now seeking an end to the coalition. Peter Godwin was born and raised in Zimbabwe. He was back there in April of 2008 to witness and chronicle the bloody aftermath of the last election. The result is a book called The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe. And Peter Godwin is in Toronto. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I was reading in the news the other day that Robert Mugabe was at the Vatican. The weekend of April 30th, May 1st, for the beatification of Pope John Paul II, he sat in the front row. You're, you're, you're rolling your eyes already. And, of course, the Zimbabwean ambassador to Britain was invited to the royal wedding, which happened the day before that. And I couldn't help but think, how can this be? Given all that we know about Mugabe and Zimbabwe, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think it's a. I think it, I know that there are protocol reasons that these people are invited. I mean, I know that for the royal wedding, for example, they said that all the ambassadors to the court of St James had to be invited. But I just think it's. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, I think. I think, particularly, really, in the case of 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 the beatification, I think it's a moral stain to have someone like that sitting in the front row. I mean, it's 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 absolutely it's absurd. I mean, it's 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 embarrassing and it's a disgrace. It's a heartbreak too, I guess. Yeah, and I think it sends a terrible message. You know, it's, I mean, it's odd because just the week before, Mugabe had launched a a, a, a swinging attack on the Catholic Church, actually, um, for its criticism of him. Because actually, the Catholic Church has been quite outspoken against Mugabe in, in Zimbabwe, the Catholic Church in Zimbabwe, in terms of its 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 pastoral letters and its official policy, and and they have been outspoken. And and um, and I, I mean, in in this book, The Fear, I've talked to a lot of of Catholic priests and 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 and, and bishops, things who had been quite outspoken. So. I think that for Mugabe to really be there, I, I mean, historically, of course, you know, he was educated by uh, on a Catholic mission by Jesuits. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I think that, and they were very good to him, you know, during during the Liberation War, one thing or another. But given what he's done now, to have him sitting in the front row makes a nonsense of the entire of the entire process. Well, you know, you were in Zimbabwe in April of 2008, just after the elections. Um, You write that you went there expecting to dance on Robert Mugabe's political grave. It's, it's, yeah, so just as well, I'm not a very good dancer. Well, it was I never got to do that dance. Um, no, I mean, and instead, what happened was that that when Mugabe realised that he was losing the election, instead of accept that, he he withheld the results for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then launched this terrifying campaign. Um, of violence against opposition supporters and mostly actually opposition office bearers, even at sort of village and and rural level. Um, and it was a campaign of 
It was really a campaign of torture on an industrial scale. What happened was that they used um, th- th- they used the schools, which had all fallen into 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 disrepair and had stopped being uh, functioning as schools because the because the country had you know w- had become a failed state at this point where health and education had all but collapsed, and they used the school premises um, around the country as torture bases, and they herded thousands and thousands of opposition office bearers into these schools. And they systematically tortured them. There was a very, very obvious pattern to what they were doing. I mean, I interviewed hundreds of torture survivors, and by the end, I, you know, I knew virtually what they were going to say next. I knew the pattern of how the torture, the torture went. Uh, many of the w- the women were mass raped. Um, the torture people had their limbs broken. Um, they had this thing where they you beat someone on the soles of their feet until there's sort of no no skin left on the soles of their feet. Um, and these people would then be trundled home and wheeled barrows or whatever and they and they would in effect be human billboards they would they would be political advertisements for what happened if you opposed Mugabe and uh, very effective I mean it's interesting and we should get something straight you, you went in um, as as both someone from there but you went in as a journalist but you couldn't actually let on that you were a journalist at this time. These were very difficult times. They were difficult times indeed. And 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 they'd thrown all the foreign journalists out. I mean, very few were allowed in to begin with. But when it looked like Mugabe had lost, several came in and then they were all thrown out and a few of them were sort of, were jailed for a few days on the way out. Um, so by the time this campaign began, the, what had happened was the journalists had all been booted out. Um, the, the opposition leadership had mostly fled the country in fear of their own lives. The NGOs had all been restricted to Harare and weren't allowed out into the field. So there was really, you know, th- th- they had created a, a virtual blackout in which to do this this terrible campaign. So it was a very, very scary time and there were very few people around to, to record it. Well, it's interesting because we were covering that at the time as best we could from here and with the, the correspondents who were sort of on the border or or who could sneak in or whatever. But, you know, as you go through it right now and you talk about torture camps, I don't think that anybody outside of there really, really got got confronted by the scope of what Mugabe did in retaliation after those elections. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, you get the sort of drip, drip feed of stories that don't, that aren't sort of developed into a joined up narrative, I mean, which is what I've tried to do here is actually just show the, the, the magnitude of what occurred. I mean, and, and really, the, the fact is, it seems to me, and not and more importantly, to many of the international jurists that I've spoken to, that what happened in Zimbabwe in 2008, definitely rose to the level of a crime against humanity. And as a result, Robert Mugabe and a lot of those top, a lot of his henchmen should, should end up in The Hague. And I think that's, you know, that's the message of this book is that, you know, that's what, that's what happened in 2008. I learned a new um, medical phrase from you, a DW, a defense wound. Right. I mean, it, it got so bad, there were all these acronyms, really, for what happens. A defense wound is basically the wound that happens to your um, to your arms, mostly your forearms, when you hold your arms up over your head to try and fend off blows from sticks, from machetes, from rocks, um, you know, from, from rifle butts. It's this very specific wounds that, that, that you get on your forearms for trying, from trying to do that, from trying to defend your head. And we're talking about 
bed after bed after bed in hospitals and clinics full of people like that. Absolutely full. And, and you know, of, well, of, of, gra- of grand, the, full of grandmothers and children, not just of, of, of adult men. Um, and, you know, a, a number of these people, I mean, there were heartbreaking situations. I mean, one where there was a, one woman I met who had both her arms broken. Most, most of the victims had their limbs broken, often, you know, three or you know, both legs and both arms and terrible fractures, not just little, you know, really awful fractures with great shards sticking out. And the doctors had run out of the metal pins that you need to, you know, to fix them. So they couldn't even set the bones in many cases. And if the bones did start to mend on their own, they had to re-break them to put the pins in. The woman who who um, had both her arms broken and had a tiny little baby that was breastfeeding and she couldn't hold the baby to her own breast to breastfeed it. And the nurse was trying to hold it to her breast and this little child was crying. And it was just the saddest thing. And, you, and, you know, and the, the matron is sort of very very um, experienced matron with decades of experience you know they were they were reduced to tears watching this thing um, uh, but astonishingly brave people people I think in some cases who were even surprised by their own courage you know that they'd they hadn't been aware that you know in a weird way you don't quite know how you you will react to these situations yourself until you're in them and these people had started out thinking that they were just getting involved in opposition politics and ended up you know realizing that those few who put their heads up above the parapet would would be treated in this way but many of them still very very defiant you make the point that that um that that was one of the reasons for the torture and the beatings was to to send a signal. But then you have this quote from from a man who's in the hospital who's who's so broken, and he says, "By giving us this threat, they are giving us power." Right. I think a lot of them a lot of them thought you know they had been to hell and back, and their spirit hadn't been broken. And they realized then you know you could see these people realizing that that they 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 had conquered the fear in a sense. They had you know, they had stared it down, and they were prepared to go on. I mean, the other thing that is really interesting about the people of Zimbabwe is they are so um, determined to have a democracy. We haven't seen a civil war. We haven't we haven't seen that opposition turning on the people who turned on them that we might see somewhere else. From the time that the opposition was created in, in 99, 1999, 2000, from the very beginning, they made it clear that they were going to follow the policies of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, that they were going to be pacifists. This, is, this was going to be a, 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 a civil, a, a, this was going to be a civil movement. They weren't going to militarize it. And the international community has rewarded them essentially by ignoring them. And and the message that the international community sends in these situations is that unless you cause all sorts of bloodshed, we're not going to sort of take you seriously. We're not going to help you, which is a terrible message to be sending to, as you say, you know, the Zimbabwe opposition movement has been patiently, doggedly struggling for 10 years now in a peaceful way just for democracy. You know, the, the, the solution in Zimbabwe isn't some incredibly complicated nation building, you know, federal solution. It's just free and fair elections. It's stunning simple. And yet for 10 years, that has eluded them. So in the end, the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change, was forced into a coalition government with Mugabe's ZANU-PF party. That was 2009. Remind us how that came about. 
So what essentially happened was that in the 2008 elections, um, there was that Mugabe f- f- took it to a second round because if nobody won by more than 50% in that first round, it went to a second round. But in fact, it's pretty clear that his challenger, Morgan Changarai, the head of the MDC, did win the first round outright. But Mugabe, Mugabe just f- cheated on those results. Because he could. Absolutely, because okay. he controlled the counting went to a second round by, and, and in the space between the first and second round launched the fear, launched this period of industrial torture and terrible repression. And then and, and, and Morgan Changarai pulled out the second round because so many of his followers were being killed and tortured. And then Mugabe just sort of declared himself the victor and that was that. But but most people didn't recognize him him you know on the international stage didn't recognize him as president and the south africans then essentially bullied the opposition into this what was supposed to be a kind of transitional hybrid government a power sharing government and the, for a while there was a sort of unsettling pattern in africa where when the wrong side won an election, it was declared a draw. Um, it happened. We saw it in Kenya. We saw it in Zimbabwe, and then we saw a, an attempt at it in the Ivory Coast in the Cote d'Ivoire. Um, uh, so, so that's what they've done in Zimbabwe during this period. I mean, it's been going on. This hybrid government has existed now for over two years. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to what's supposed to happen during this period is there's supposed to be a whole raft of reforms, political reforms that are supposed to come in and a new constitution, um, and then we're supposed to have proper elections. But very few of those reforms have actually been brought in. So you still have a situation where Mugabe controls the courts, controls the army, controls the police, controls the media, doesn't allow any independent radio stations or TV stations to operate in Zimbabwe. So it's still very, very much in that sense, a repressive state. Well, and Morgan Changarai is the prime minister. Does he have any power? Not really. I mean, he has, you know, they've, what they've allowed to happen is they've allowed the, the opposition to control the so, so-called soft ministries. So they run the Ministry of Health and they run the Ministry of Education, where they have, in both cases, you know, ma- managed to do quite a lot. You make the point that South Africa essentially has enabled Mugabe throughout this process. Why? What's in it for them? Well, they have. I mean, I think that South Africa is both the key to the to solving the conflict and and has in fact been Mugabe's prime shield, prime enabler. I mean, I think that that on the one hand, you know, there is a kind of camaraderie between these liberation governments, these countries which fought um, liberation wars against colonial colonials or settler governments. All of those movements are still in power. So you know, in South Africa, Namibia, Angola, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and there's a. It's not in the interest of any one of them that any other of those governments lose power because it tends to sort of break that liberation mythology that the sort of the, that they are the sole fonts of political legitimacy. So there's mm. that on the one. Except hand. that they're missing the fact that um, they're hurting their own people. Well, of course. I mean, there's an enormous hypocrisy involved in it. It's all. It's all just about how it looks. Um, no, no, I mean, the fact is that Mugabe has been roundly rejected by his own people for more than 10 years and probably would would have been before even that if they'd been free and fair elections. I mean, the other thing, there's a more complicated reason now as well, which is that was which is that the union movement in South Africa, which is part of the government, has supported the, the MDC in Zimbabwe, which which morphed out of the Zimbabwean Union movement, um, and and the present South African president Jacob Zuma is worried that his own union movement will 
form an opposition party and challenge him. So there's there's it's more those, about political survival right, than it is right. about caring about. It's your not. People. It's it absolutely. I don't think. I mean, it, it, in, there's no moral. There's no morally defensible reason to be supporting the Mugabe regime. I mean, the South Africans, I think, have been trying to hope that Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, could be reformed as sort of ZANU-PF light, and they might find some sort of technocrat from within ZANU-PF to run it. But you can't reform a party like that. Talk to me a little bit more about Robert Mugabe and how he has managed to stay there for so long. You write at one point, if you were casting the role of homicidal African dictator who fights his way to power and stays there against the odds for three decades, Robert Mugabe wouldn't even rate a callback. It's true. I mean, he's, you know, he's a slight man. He's got these, you know, he he, he looks almost effeminate. He's got sort of strange little movements with his hands. He doesn't look like a kind of Idi Amin, you know, who was the heavyweight boxing champion of the King's African Rifles. He's he's an unlikely looking dict- dictator. He's very bright, very uh, very educated. I mean, hyper-educated. I think six graduate degrees at last count. Um, and I think that, you know, he, you need to look both at his background um, and his early political career to see the seeds of dictatorship. It's interesting about dictators. I've 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 worked in a lot of a, a lot of dictatorships now, and they manage this sort of paradoxical thing. They manage to be both ubiquitous and remote at the same time. You know they. Um, and to sort of condition their people to sort of internalize the repression almost. Mugabe's was abandoned by his father when he was a very young boy and he was brought up on a on a Jesuit mission station. And I think there's probably that sense of abandonment has also, you know, sparked some kind of rage within him. Um, I think that right from the beginning, as he works his way up ZANU-PF, he, he uses violence. He uses violence in the leadership disputes. He uses he used violence um, in the war itself. I mean, tactically, it was a guerrilla war. Um, he, used, he used the threat of violence even in those first elections when he got to power in 1980, where he left a lot of his guerrillas out in the field and they went and said to people, vote for us or else. Um, and I think that... You know, I think he's got this air of superiority and you can see him looking at aghast at when he realised, I think in, in 2008 in particular, the extent of the vote against him, the real vote against him, which he must have realised. You could, you could see him thinking, how could you possibly vote against me? If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a vote. You know, he has this messianic feel to him that, that, that is a, an occupational hazard of a lot of revolutionaries, of people who've, you know, who, who fought liberation wars, who, who see themselves as liberators, and sort of Castro, Chavez, kind of, you know, see these people, and they, they feel like they alone can be the legitimate leaders and nobody else mm. can have access to it. Well, it's it's almost Shakespearean, right? The one who fights the tyranny becomes the tyrant, right? And I mean, there are shades of King Lear, you know, as well. You see, you know, it is Shakespearean. The 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 the, the dramatic arc is very Shakespearean. It's also. It's also Zimbabwe is also a tragedy in the in the classical Greek sense of it. I mean, it's a tragedy because it's 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 both avoidable and inevitable. You know, you sort of see this I mean, one man. I mean, this this it's a personification of hubris. One man would rather pull a country down on top of everybody's heads than than cede power. You look around the world today. You see um, the. Um the revolutions in Egypt and Tunisia, you see um, intervention on various scales, Libya right now. Um, what is it about us in the wider international community in the West 
that allows this to continue, like, right off the radar? You see, the truth is we say in the West that we intervene for humanitarian reasons, but really we don't. I mean, that's one aspect of it. But th there are there are much um, better triggers for intervention, much quicker triggers than the humanitarian one. For example, mostly we go in where we see a country is of strategic importance for one reason or another. So if a country exports oil or if it exports or threatens to export Islamic terrorism, we'll go in. Zimbabwe exports neither of those things. So it doesn't get on the strategically important list. And Mugabe's been very clever not to actually kill people in quite sufficient numbers to sort of to push the international community over into kind of moral revulsion. He, he hasn't killed people on the scale of um, Rwanda, for example, but he does it in a more cunning way. I mean, he kills just enough people. He Instead of killing hundreds of thousands of people, he kills the right few hundred or few thousand and tortures many more. So what's the solution? Well, I think South Africa is one is is the solution. I think South Africa needs to get a lot more um, active in in bring in ensuring these reforms are brought are brought through. The reforms on which this current transitional government is based, they just haven't happened. So and, and, and does the international community then need to lean on South Africa yes. so that they don't that they stay on track? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's weirdly the problem is that. The West finds it difficult to lean on Zimbabwe directly while South Africa is sort of supposed to be coordinating the, the, the conflict resolution. So I think it's simple. We say to South Africa, you've got to be honest about this. You've got to, you've got to be effective about it and, and actually enforce these reforms. Or you need to sort of give up and let us get more involved. So I think in the first instance, the West really does need to lean on South Africa to, 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 to do what it said it will do. And when are the next elections supposed to be? Well, nobody knows. I mean, Mugabe's been pushing for an early election, but none of the reforms uh, that, that, that he is supposed to institute have happened. I mean, so, you know, so the opposition won't accept that. And South Africa now looks, and the, and the region, SADAC, the, the, the Southern African Development Community, looks like it also needs at least some more reforms to go through before it will sign off on an election. So I don't think, and the other thing is that Zimbabweans can't afford elections. They actually cost quite a lot of money to run mm. and they don't ha they're completely bankrupt. So it looks like elections probably won't happen for at least another year. But, but, but the opposition are going to be in a very difficult position if they're faced with the prospect of elections, but without the promised reforms. They'll either have to, you know, w will they boycott or will they actually go, will they participate? They're going to be in a real quandary. Well, and you make the point that Mugabe should be tried at The Hague. Um, even Morgan Changarai was very careful when um, it looked like he might actually have power and what he would do with Mugabe because he didn't want to create um, panic, right, and people taking well, revenge. So uh, internally, I, I'm just trying to get my head around how much, how difficult this is. I mean, it's very difficult. In, in, in public, the opposition can't say, oh, the minute we get in power, we, we want to put Mugabe and all the other people responsible for, this, for the violence on trial because all, all that will, will, will achieve is to make sure that Mugabe is determined to stay in power so that doesn't happen. But even if they promise Mugabe immunity and ZANU-PF immunity, which they may well have to do as part of sort of any internal deal, it doesn't hold much water these days because international law is changing. And, you know, the, and, and, and as I said, it, in 2008, 
what what happened there in Zimbabwe, that that huge campaign of torture does rise to the level of a, of a crime against humanity. So that's not within the remit of the Zimbabwean opposition to give Mugabe a free pass. I mean, you know, so the world can speak. Absolutely. And the victims should be able to speak, too. You know, they 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 have an they, they have, you know, a right to see some sort of justice, too. And part of the reason that Zimbabwe has ended up where it has is that there is a cycle of, of impunity that's that's no one's ever been no one's we haven't ever mm-hmm. had a truth and reconciliation commission or any kind of um even a sort of acknowledgement to ourselves of what's happened going back to the Rhodesian war the Massabi land massacres the fear in 2008 no, we, there's never been any kind of accounting for it and so it just gets metastasized into the kind of culture that people just you can be violent, politically violent, and get away with it. You know, I'm, I, I still hold that image, though, of these people with these defense wounds. they so severely maimed just by trying to protect themselves. And I know that that as you started to go around the country and, and look at these things that, you know, you um, you kind of knew what you would see. But I also get the impression that this has really – this had a profound effect on you as you as you kept meeting those people. No, it had a huge it had a huge effect, and in fact, I didn't really know going in. You know, none of us quite knew what was happening. There was this complete blackout, and until we started to see the first victims, and even then, we had no idea of the scale of it and the the pattern of it. You know, these things. One, you know, it's easy in hindsight to sort of realize what has happened, but at the time, there was all this sort of confusion. I mean, I deliberately wrote the book in the present tense to sort of give to try and give that impression of what it's like being on the ground when something like this starts and sort of the horror slowly dawns on you as you recognize the the, the epic scale of this thing. Stays with you, doesn't it? Well, it it does. I mean, it's very you know, and it's strange coming. You know, I'm I'm sort of going back and forth, sort of commuting back and forth, and which I did during the book. And it's really hard. It's bizarre, sort of you know, being in that situation one minute and then coming back to a sort of you know normal unquote life in New York and trying, you know, it it really and trying to hold both those worlds in your head at the same time and maintain a kind of normality. It really it it's it's very bizarre. So much to think about, and um, it's really important to hear you talk about this now as it continues. Peter Godwin, thank you. You're welcome. Peter Godwin is a former foreign correspondent and human rights lawyer who was born and raised in Zimbabwe. His book is The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe.